Good evening, everyone. Good to have you in the service again tonight. I really appreciate your presence. Now, I have to tell you, I really believe we could say amen right now and go home, and everything would have been good because, boy, what a blessing to be able to be here to hear the music. The congregational singing was second to none tonight. It really was. And you fellows singing those songs, oh, my word. My, it was good to hear a quartet. You, do you know, do you folks here realize how blessed you are to have that kind of talent sitting on your benches? My, it's just wonderful. I, I really sincerely was thinking as I was sitting here, my, oh, my, they, they're setting a high bar here for me this evening because after that, anything else is going to seem pretty dull. At least that's the way I would think it would be. But, boy, I'm just really glad to have been able to experience that together with you. Since this is the last night, I um, thought maybe I should say a few things here before we get going too far here along the, the line here tonight. Um, first of all, thank you so much. Uh, the offering was received and so forth, and thank you very much for that. Uh, we'll do our best to use it in the work of the kingdom in some way, and uh, I'm sure God will give us uh, the grace to be able to do that. But thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that. And it's not that we're poor, but nonetheless, it shows your support in what we're doing. And so I really appreciate it. I really do. Um, actually, sort of a goofy thought just came through my mind. We were living, we sold a house one time and had a little bit of work to finish up. And, you know, we went to the closing. I had a, had a carpenter there who was doing the work. And so uh, we went to the closing and got our money came back to the house, and he wasn't done yet. When I walked into the house, he said, did you get your money? I said, yeah, I got the money. He started packing his tools up right now. He was ready. I said, John, we can't do that. We got to finish. I told him we would. You got your money, didn't you? I said, yeah, but we got to finish. We can't. So that's where I am tonight. I got to finish. <laughs> anyway, the dumbest things go through my head for some reason. <laughs> Don't have it yet. That's right. Been delegated, but not it hadn't been delivered. That's right. Yeah. Well, I guess I really do need to finish that. <laughs> but on a serious note as well, I want to tell you this. I I I know you appreciate your pastors. I know you do. I, I really know that. But um, having Brother Glenn here doing the kind of work that he's doing today, I don't know of anybody you could have gotten to come back into the harness and do the kind of work that he and Elsie are doing. I think they're top notch. I don't think you'll ever find anyone better equipped to do the kind of work that they're doing. And for your senior pastor here, Brother Merlin, I want you to know I have the greatest of respect for him. I want you to know that. I want you to know I hold him in high esteem. And I'd even go further than that. I would go so far as to tell you that CMC dare not lose this brother. They need him desperately, and I'm serious about that. They really do. This brother has things to offer that the rest of the conference needs to hear. I need to hear it. And I count it a privilege to stand shoulder to shoulder with, with Merlin and with Glenn and do what we can in the work of the kingdom. And I am really serious about that. Now, you know you're in trouble when you have to tell people you're serious, don't you? <laughs> but I am. All right. Well, for this evening, I told you we're going to be speaking about the return of the Lord. It may be a little different than what you're expecting because I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about how this is going to happen, what sign to look for, and what, you know, and things like that. I would rather um, speak about it in a bit of a different way. I sense the joy that was here in the audience this evening when we sang those songs, the congregational songs. It seemed like the roof would come off of this place. And there just seemed to be an overwhelming joy in the music that was going up to heaven. 
And to think about what's going on here, I just, I thought, boy, oh boy, what's been happening with the music confirms what I'd like to do here this evening in speaking to you. The title of our subject here tonight is, And He Shall Reign Forever and Ever. In John chapter 14, that famous chapter that we oftentimes use in funerals, uh, Jesus said there that I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come again. So that where I am, there you may be also. John chapter 14, verse 3 is where you'll find that. So we have the promise of Jesus. That he really is going to be coming back again. We don't know when exactly. Uh, if we had time for another sermon, I could tell you, give you some pointers on that, but we don't have time for that because I want to take a bit of a different tack here this evening. But I want to talk about some things out of the Old Testament to help us to understand how it came to be that Jesus really is the Messiah. And we'll see if we can't follow that through the Old Testament timeline here just a bit, particularly with the story of Joseph and what happened there. We needed a Savior because of what happened back there in Genesis chapter 3. And in fact, the first Messianic prophecy we have is found in that chapter where God was going to find a way. He already had a way. He wasn't just going to find one. But he already had a way where he was going to cancel out the sin and bring everything back to where it should have been. And the rest of the Bible, from there on forward, the rest of the Bible is concerning itself with helping us to understand how God was going to reverse things that had been messed up back there in the Garden of Eden. That's what the whole Bible is about from that point on. So that we would know God and know how he's going to do that. And I spoke a little bit about, mentioned a little bit about patterns in the Old Testament. And they're there. They really are there. Now, I'm going to admit to you, and I, I, uh, I think I may have mentioned just a little bit the other evening as well, that when we go back into the Old Testament patterns that are there, I think myself, we should pay attention to every one of them. But we do have theologians who will tell us that unless the Apostle Paul or Peter or somebody else, unless they pointed those things out specifically in the New Testament, then we dare not do that in the Old Testament. I disagree with that. And, uh, I mean, that's no big banana there because, I mean, after all, nobody really cares that much about what Dale has to say in the theological world. But however... I'm saying to you that I believe what, what we really have at hand here is that Paul and Peter and some of the others that did those things, they did enough to show us how it's done, but they didn't cover every pattern in the Old Testament. The New Testament would be a book like this. Did you see that little cartoon the other day about a book that's been written about uh, understanding women? It's about that thick. <laughs> you see that? Well, that's the kind of book you'd have had if we'd have gone back into the Old Testament and explained every story that's there because there's a wealth of information that we can get a hold of. And I believe we're going to be able to do that this evening when we turn back into Genesis chapter 37. It's where I want to begin because we have the story of a person who became literally the savior of the world. And when we follow what he does here, what happens to him, we're going to be able to understand a bit better perhaps what went on in the life of Christ. And I would also tell you we'll find out a little bit better ourselves what's happening to us because indeed... The things that have happened in my life at certain times have not looked like they were inspired by the Lord. It didn't look like what I felt like God was asking me to do. There's all kinds of things that have happened in people's lives that you begin to wonder, is this really what God wants for me? I thought I had a clear handle on what God wanted me to do and how he wanted me to serve. And yet something's happening here that doesn't fit the pattern. So what's going on? I'll give you a little illustration here. Way, way, way back, I was preaching here in the Goshen area at Town Line. And I was staying with Calvin Bontrager. At that time, he was working for a, some kind of a, a truck body place. I don't know which one it was, but one of the big ones over there on 33 somewhere. You know which one it was? Supreme. Supreme, okay. 
So he was going to give me a tour of their truck body place one day. And we went in, looked around, and you know, walked the whole thing, which is about all either one of us wanted to do. But we finally got all the way around the thing and found out that at the very end of his tour, here was this big, um, what, it wasn't a gymnasium, what do you call those things? Exercise room. A torture room. More like it. I mean, we, it was upstairs. First of all, you had to climb up to even get to the thing. What a, you could at least put it on the floor down here. And when we went up there and looked in, he had all these instruments of torture sitting around there, you know. And, and if you wanted to do something special, you wanted to develop your body in some special way, well, they had charts up there as to how you could do these things. I'll never forget one of them. I am not a golfer. I've never been golfing in my life. Putt-putt as far as I ever got. There was a fellow that came into a service one night when I was preaching, and he was so tall. He, he had to, really, seriously, he had to duck his head to get through the doorway back here. I mean, he was a monster. Came in, and after the service, I couldn't resist it. He was so tall. I was standing there talking to him like this, you know. And I said, uh, do you play basketball? And he said, I decided the next person that asked me that, I'm going to ask them if they play putt-putt. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> That's all I can do is play putt-putt. I've never played golf in my life. But anyway, on the wall, here we have all these instruments of torture out here. And on the wall is this chart. If you want to be a better golfer, here's what you do. And it was all prescribed. On this machine, you do this. On that machine, you do that. And you had to go through this whole regimen of trying out all these different machines. And at the end of that, you're supposed to be a better golfer. There wasn't a thing on that chart that looked like hitting a golf ball. Nothing. And my life has looked like that at times. I thought I knew what God wanted and then things happened. Doesn't resemble what I thought God wanted at all. But it was part of the training. It was part of what we needed to go through in order to be equipped to do what God wanted. And I'm not unusual. That's why unusual things happen in your lives as well. Things that don't look at all like they came from God, but God allowed that to happen so that we could learn things from it and be better equipped in future to perform what he wanted us to perform. And so when we look in on chapter 37, the book of uh, Genesis here, we find a young man that things happened to that didn't look like it was supposed to happen at all, but it did. We have a young man who seems to be a fine young man. It says here in chapter 37, verse 1, that Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a, a stranger in the land of Canaan. And he goes on and talks about the generations of, jo of Jacob. And the first one he mentions is Joseph. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was, uh, was the, with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, that's the handmaidens, his father's wives. So they were his half-brothers. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. They were not nice boys. And he went and told on them. And of course, you can imagine, that did not make him their favorite brother. Uh, children have a habit of, they, they don't care for everybody that wants to tell on them all the time. That's not, uh, that's not, uh, not very nice. Well, what he did. On top of that, it says in verse 3, that Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children. Because he was the son of his old age. You know how that happens, don't you? There were 10 children in our family. I happened to be number two. And I was among those that when school was taken in, you'd better be in school or in the morgue, one of the two. You didn't have any choice, but you went to school. By the time they had 10 children and got down to the bottom, the last one never even graduated, and the next to the last one barely attended school enough in the senior year to even be able to graduate. Boy, that wasn't the way it was when I was up there at the top going to school. You had to do it, period. But it is true that parents do tend 
to mellow out. And somewhere down the line is this golden boy or golden girl that can do no wrong. And the rest of the children fume and fuss. And, and if, you, if you think you don't have a golden boy or a golden girl in your family, you just ask the children. They know who it is. <laughs> they know. They, they really do. Well, in this case, <laughs> uh, too good. <laughs> but in this case, we really do have the golden boy identified here because it says he was the son of his old age. And I'll tell you something else the Bible doesn't say here, but it's factual. He was also the son of his most beloved wife. That didn't hurt anything either. This is not one of the slave girl's boys or Leah, not her. No, this, this was Rachel. That's the one he wanted to marry all along. And that's the one that this boy came from. So here we have a good situation to create a golden boy. And that's what happened. On top of that, he sets him up. I mean, his father didn't do him any favors. Because it says in verse 3 that Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children. And because he, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a coat of many colors. Can you imagine that? Jacob, what, what's wrong with you? You're setting this boy up. You make him a special coat that he can parade around in front of all of his brothers and show just how much you love him as opposed to them. He was set up. In some ways, he could not help what happened to him. Well, then he, um, it says in verse 5, he dreamed. He dreamed a dream, and they were out in the field, and the sheaves were there. And he said, my sheaves stood up. And the 11 other sheeps all bowed down to me. Well, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out what that means. Or a dream teller either. I mean, you know, it just... It, and, and his brothers caught it right away. Are you saying we're going to bow down to you? Is that what you're saying? Well, that wasn't good enough. He had another dream. And this time, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowed down to him. Well, his daddy gave him a little bit of a talking to, but he also pondered those things in his heart and kept them. Thought about them. What's going to happen? It was a, a precursor. It was a forerunner of what was going to happen in years to come. It was a prophetic kind of a thing that was happening here, even though nobody at that point would have recognized that. Well, the next thing that happens in this chapter, beginning verse 12, is that his brothers were tending their father's flocks in Shechem. Apparently, he wanted to know how they were doing. And so he calls, you know, when you think about the dynamics of this thing, you really do wonder, Jacob, aren't you thinking at all? But he does, apparently he doesn't. Because he calls Joseph in and says, you know, your brother's out in Shechem tending the sheep, and I want you to go and see how they're doing. Sure. So he sets off. He gets to Shechem. They're not there. And so he asks around, and somebody there happened to know something, and he said, oh, I heard them saying they're going to go to Dotan. So he went to Dotan, and there they were, and they saw him coming. What was the first thing they did when he came there? Tore that coat off of him. They reduced him down to their level. They tore that coat of many colors off of him, and now he's just like them. And they threw him into the pit, intending to kill him. It's a familiar story to us. Now, I want, you to, I want to ask you something. Is there anything in what has happened so far that would indicate that one day he would be the Savior of the world? Anything in there? No, there's not. 
There's not. When you think about when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and they had to go into exile down in Egypt just in order to save his life because Herod was on the warpath against two-year-olds of all things, two-year-olds and younger. Anything in that action that looks like this fellow is going to be the savior of the world? No, there's, no, there's not. There's not. If you follow Jesus all the way through his life, of course, they came back and they went up to Nazareth and they lived there. And then when he began his ministry, people mocked him. They made fun of him. They, he was treated terrible. There's nothing in those actions that I can see that indicates what was yet to come that God was making preparation for. And that is especially true here when we talk about Joseph. In order for Joseph to become what God wanted him to become, we have to get him in touch with the highest power of the then known day. We have to do that. Because after all, if he's going to be the savior of all the world, his name was changed. Remember that? His name was changed to Zaphnath Paenea. Some scholars say it means nothing. Other scholars say it means the savior of the world. Well, for point of argument this evening, let's take that one, okay? If he's going to be the savior of the world, we're going to have to get him in touch with the leading power of the world. And that means there's no way he can stay a shepherd boy in the land of Canaan. We must get him from Canaan into Egypt to meet up with the Pharaoh. But the steps that it took in order for that to happen seemed terribly unusual. He had to go to his brothers because they held the power to get him into Egypt. That's how so. Because they happened to be in Dotan where the traders moved back and forth. The nomads with their camels buying and selling and trying to eke out a living. And while he was in the pit and they were eating bread, and I find out later when they, years and years later in Egypt when they were talking about that experience, they said we heeded not his cries. And evidently he was in that pit. The Bible's careful to tell us no water, dry hole, of course. But he's in there and he must have been sobbing his, his heart out. They're sitting up here eating and drinking and doing whatever. And they saw some Ishmaelite traders coming along and somebody got the brilliant idea. We don't really want to kill him. He's our brother. But let's sell him. Do you realize there is some money you really don't want to make? Do you know that? There's some money you don't want. And I'm I, I, I will assure you that these 20 pieces of silver that they sold him for burned a hole in their hearts the rest of their lives. But they hauled him up out of there and they sent him off to Egypt with these Ishmaelites. So here goes Joseph. You realize he wasn't going to go home again? Mm -mm. He wasn't going to go home again. He wasn't going back to whatever kind of a room he had in the tent there. He wasn't going to go back to the things that were his, his own possessions, and, and his mom, his dad. He wasn't going home anymore. God had called upon him to spend his life in a foreign land in order to preserve our salvation. That's what's going on here. We have to preserve the messianic line. And had they been subject to famine across the world, it may well be that we would have lost our lineage and our salvation right along with it. God had to make a preparation that that would not happen. Another case like that was in your Sunday school lesson on Sunday with Josiah. When I pointed out in the class that I was in, the greatest thing Josiah ever did was to die. Because in so doing, he held up the Egyptian king from being able to come to the assistance of the Assyrians. 
before the Babylonians took them over. Those are things that God arranged. And here's something God arranged as well. To get him there, but the path to get him to the Pharaoh seems horribly unfair. It really does. So he's sold down into Egypt. When he gets to Egypt, there's a fellow named Potiphar who was um, right next to the king who bought him. It says here in verse 36 of chapter 37, and the Midianites sold him into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of the pharaohs, of pharaohs and a captain of the guard. Chapter 38 is the story of Judah, which we can skip. And we'll pick up again in chapter 39, beginning in verse 1, where it says that Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. We won't, for the sake of time, read all those verses that are there. But let me just briefly review with you what happened. He went to work in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar treated him well. He was so successful, the Lord was with him. He was so successful that Potiphar gave everything over into his hand, and he was in charge of everything, doing all wonderful work, well thought of, and so forth. This is going great until Potiphar's wife had other ideas. I'm saying to you that time and time again, Joseph wound up on the receiving end of something he did not deserve. And yet, God was using that to propel him into the position that he wanted him to have. That same thing is true of Jesus. He did not deserve the things that he suffered. But God had him there so he could become the savior of the world. In this case, Potiphar's wife did what she did and will not elaborate on the point. We can give you some information, but I'll leave you go with that. The end result of all of that was he wound up in prison. It does say that Potiphar was angry. When she told him what she said he tried to do to her, it does say that he was full of wrath. Potiphar was full of wrath. It doesn't say who he was angry at. You assume he was angry at Joseph. But I would also say to you, if he was fully convinced his wife was telling the truth, Joseph would have died right there. That's what would have happened. But he is thrown into prison. Bad move, right? What, I don't know if Joseph had any idea what God wanted him to do eventually or not. But here he is in prison now. I mean, things are going from bad to worse. He's in the hole. They get him up. They send him to Egypt. He's riding on a donkey or walking all the way, not a donkey, excuse me, a camel, all the way down to Egypt. He's sold, into prison, sold to a Potiphar. He goes to work as a slave. The wife makes false accusations against him, and now he's in prison. I can just about imagine him crying out to God. I, I am imagining it because he doesn't say it in the Bible. But if I would have been him, I'd have been sitting in that jail cell feeling like, what in the world is going on? I haven't done anything. And here I am, accused of a horrible crime. But God was there. God was there. God was directing his path. <laughs> and then one day the Pharaoh got angry at two of his servants. One was the butler, one was the baker. Now we're getting somewhere. We've got somebody who's connected to the Pharaoh. As the Pharaoh knows. And he sends them right down there to rub shoulders with Joseph. Because Joseph by then had risen as far as you can rise in the prison ranks. The keeper of the prison had entrusted him with all kinds of things. He was well thought of, just as he was everywhere he went. 
So now we have two of uh, Pharaoh's acquaintances, two of Pharaoh's servants. They're right down there with Joseph. Oh, now we're getting somewhere. And after a little while, they had dreams. And we've got a guy there that knows something about dreams. Remember that? I won't take the time to read all the story there, but um, both of them had dreams. They were a little different. And uh, they didn't know what it meant. They were distressed. Had no idea what these dreams were all about. And Joseph says, uh, tell me what you dreamed. The first one that went forth was the uh, butler. And the butler told him his dream. The end result of that was Joseph said, you know what? In three days, you're going to be restored back to your post. That's what's going to happen. Everything will be okay with you again. Well, that's wonderful. So the baker thought, that's, a, that's good. Let me tell you what I dreamed. Well, this, this one didn't turn out too good. Because the answer for Joseph, that Joseph gave him was, well, um, sorry to have to tell you this, but in three days, he's planning on separating your head from your body. It really says, King James said something about lifting his head off. Uh, so he wasn't restored. But when the butler left prison three days later, he left with the admonishment of Joseph in his ears. Remember me to the Pharaoh. Remember me to the Pharaoh. The butler forgot all about it. Oh. You think Joseph deserved him to forget it? No. Not at all. But he did. But two years later, according to the Bible, the Pharaoh had a dream. And nobody could tell him what it meant until the butler remembered there's a man in prison that will be able to help. And they sent and they got him. Now, everything I've been telling you so far is a preamble to the real meat of what we're talking about. God had to move him into a position where he could become the savior of the world. God had to move Jesus into a position where he would become the savior of the of the world. And so here's what happened. I'm calling this the rise of the Savior. It was by means of Pharaoh's dream that he was able to get into the presence of Pharaoh because Pharaoh really wanted to know what do these dreams mean? And Joseph was called upon. Here's what it says. Uh, let's see here. Where am I? Chapter 41, I believe it is. Yeah. Here's what it says. Beginning of chapter 41. It came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh dreamed, and behold, he stood by the river, and here's the dream, okay? In verse 9, Then spake the chief butler unto Pharaoh, saying, I do remember my faults this day. And he remembers Joseph. Skip down to verse 14. And Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon. He shaved himself, changed his raiment, and came in unto the Pharaoh. We are really getting somewhere now. We're getting him close. It's been a terrible journey. We're really getting him close now to where he needs to be. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I've dreamed a dream. You know, and told him what it was all about. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, this is verse 16, It is not in me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, In my dream, behold, I dreamed. And of course, it was the dreams about the years, the seven years of plenty, and then the seven years of famine. And when he gets done explaining all of that, you got to love Joseph. I mean, you just got to love him here because he doesn't just, he's really not a meek and mild-mannered person. 
That might have been part of his problem in getting him in trouble all the time. I don't know. I mean, after all, when he dreamed that first dream about his brothers, he could have been discreet and not told them what it was. And when he dreamt the second one about his father and his mother and all the rest of the boys, he, he could have been discreet and simply not said anything. Or not, not, not Joseph. I dreamed a dream. Here's what it is. Didn't do him any favors. And so he's not bashful. He's really not bashful. If his name would be Kefir, he'd have been bashful, but he's not bashful. And so here's what happens. At the end of verse 32, verse 32 is the end of the interpretation. He says, and for that, the dream was double unto Pharaoh twice. It is because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Your job is done, Joseph. But he keeps right on talking. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh look out a man discreet and wise. Set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land and take up the fifth part of all the land of Egypt in the seven plenteous years. He goes on and explains this thing. And verse 37 says, The thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all of his servants. And Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this is? A man in whom the Spirit of God is. And he puts him in charge. Man, we've arrived. We've arrived where he can do what God wants him to do. I would tell you this, folks, and it's brought out later on in the book of Genesis here in chapter 45, for example, it talks about it, that God in chapter 45, verse 5, that it's when we have a discussion going on between Joseph's brothers and Joseph, and in that discussion as they're talking, they're admitting to what they did, they're also begging for forgiveness in a way, and Joseph says, no, no, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He says that God sent me down here to preserve life. And I'm saying to you that had he not been sent down there, the Messianic line would have been, could have been snubbed out because of the famines. Could have been. But Joseph living the life he did of unjustified hardship that moved him along the path that God wanted him to go, when he remained faithful to God and he reached that point where he could do something, we were saved. We were saved. He says God sent him to preserve life. God sent him before to preserve a posterity for Israel, chapter 45 and verse 7. And he went, sent them in the same verse. It says that God sent him before to save their lives by a great deliverance. This thing goes even further than that. If you look back, I believe it's chapter 41, verse 57. Uh, here we are. Now, here we are. Do you remember what we've been talking about in some of the other services here? That this is worldwide. He is not willing that any should perish. It's worldwide. You know what it says here? Verse 57. It says that all countries came into Egypt to Joseph for to buy corn because that the famine was so sore in all the lands. God was congregating the people of the entire then known world in Egypt. They came together. And there is where the, uh, the savior of the world at that point would have been Joseph. Remember what he did? That's the rise of the savior, the rule of the savior. He was given Pharaoh's ring. You know what that means, don't you? 
Remember the story of Haman? You remember when the king, Ahasuerus, he gave his ring to Haman, and Haman wrote the laws as despicable as they were, but it had the king's authority behind it because he had the king's ring. And all he had to do was sign it with the king's ring, seal it with the king's ring, and it was law. And when Haman ran his course, and Mordecai came on the scene as being favored by the king, the king again, it says, he took his ring back from Haman, and he gave it over to Mordecai. And now Mordecai had the authority to write whatever law he wanted. That's what we're talking about here. In this case, it says that the Pharaoh gave him his ring. That means he put him in charge. Chapter 41, verse 42. His title, Savior of the World, in verse 45. And then he was given Potiphar's, not Potiphar's, he didn't have children, we don't believe anyway. He was given Potiphera, who was the wife, excuse me, the daughter of one of the priests of Egypt for a wife. He took charge of Egypt. Boy, if we think taxation is bad today, this is a matter of life and death. And uh, he literally, for seven years, he went throughout all the land of Egypt and he gathered up the crops. Everybody had all kinds of crops because things were just bountiful and crops were records and all of that. And he built storehouses and he claimed the king's share of the, of the, uh, the grain that was produced and all of that. And he stockpiled and stockpiled and stockpiled and stockpiled until the day came when the years of plenty were gone. And it doesn't, most, I shouldn't say most people, but awful lot of people, even in our society today, live hand to mouth. That when disaster strikes, it doesn't take long, that dire consequences have settled in on some folks because they don't have any foresight, for some reason, of what could take place, and they make very little preparation for it. And that's what it seems happened here, that when the crops got shut off, all of a sudden, everybody is in trouble. And so in chapter 41, verses 46 to 57, is where you'll find the story. That he went throughout the land of Egypt. He gathered up all the food. And by the time you get to verse 56, he's opening up the storehouses. It's interesting that verse 57 says that all countries came into Egypt. And that affects our story. Because in the land of Canaan to the north, they were suffering. And God wanted to get the rest of the family down there. There's a lot more involved in them going down there than just preserving them. It was, indeed, it was a preserving kind of a thing. But we have to, in, in a much broader sense, we have to, in order to be able to make our way to the Messiah, I'm talking about in history, we actually have to have a nation. All we have so far is a family. You've got to have a family, then a clan, then a tribe, then a nation. You've got to keep moving this thing up. So that we can actually have a king. You can't be a king of nothing. In order to be able to have a king, you've got to have a nation to be a king of. And we have to bring Israel and the family up to the status of a nation. And so while they were in Egypt for those years, there's a big debate on, I shouldn't say a big debate, but there is a difference of opinion as to how long they were there. If I was to ask you how long were they in Egypt, you would probably say 400 years. But if you read what Paul says in the book of Galatians, you'd come to a different conclusion. And you'd say, 200 years. It's a big difference between the way some folks look at it. At any rate, for whatever period of time they were there, they were there in nation building. They went down there with 70 people 
And whether it was 200 years or 400 years later, they came out with at least 2 million plus. In order to be able to have a nation, what they went down there for was that in the incubator of Egypt, they could have, they could have these, they would grow, they would grow, they have children, they would grow. But they were doing things, everything was wonderful for them, you know, they were given the land of Goshen, they were living right along, and then a pharaoh came along that didn't know Joseph, and then they were put into bondage. I'm telling you, for the birth rate, that causes it to go up. I'm just telling you, that's the way it is. When people are under duress and stress, the birth rate goes up. We need a nation. So let's make the birth rate go up. We'll get this job done quicker. That's what happened. It really did. But that's, that's something different from what we're talking about here tonight. So I'll leave that alone here for the moment. But um, the Bible is very clear to tell us that the famine was sore in all lands. And so they all came to Egypt in order to receive food. The reign of the Savior looks like what? We've talked about the rise of the Savior, the rule of the Savior, how he did things. The reign of the Savior. I'm telling you folks, today is going to come. No matter how frustrated we might be at this point in time of ourselves, uh, when you see all the wrong that is taking place, you see all the babies that are being aborted in the world today, it seemed like we in the United Kingdom seem to be leading the path, at least that's the path of least resistance anyway, it seems like. But there are millions and millions of babies being butchered. Body parts are being sold. They can sell you a, 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 the, the head of a baby. If you'd rather have it still attached, they'll give you the whole body that's left. They sell parts of babies. God, in his righteousness, is not going to see that kind of a thing go on and on and on. He's not going to do that. There's going to come a day when he's going to call everybody to account for the things that have happened. I don't know how far away that is, but surely it can't go on much longer. But in speaking about the reign of the Savior, in Genesis chapter 42, if you're, moving, if you're keeping track of all this and moving up, let me just read this for you. Chapter 42, verses 6 through 9. It says that Joseph was the governor over the land and... He it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed, them, and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them, but, they made himself, but made himself strange unto them, and spake roughly unto them. And he said unto them, Whence come thou? Whence come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew him not. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them and said unto them, You are spies to see the nakedness of the land you are come. And the discussion goes on from there. I don't know how you feel about that one. I kind of think that Joseph was having a hard time. I, I do. I don't think he was testing them. I think God was testing him. I really believe he was having a hard time with that because of what he remembered that they had done to him. But let me just summarize this for you before it gets even too late here. Let me summarize for you what happened here. When you read through Genesis 47, you will discover two different things that I want to make you familiar with. The first one is the Savior's dealings with his people who were aliens in the land of Egypt. His dealings with his people. So what happened? In chapter 47, verse 11, he gave them a place. Gave them a place. Again in verse 11, gave them a possession 
in verse 12, gave them a provision. In all cases, he gives, gives, and gives. The reign of the Savior. But if anybody thinks that when Jesus begins to reign, that he's going to tolerate the workings of the devil or those who work against him, you should see what happened in the Egyptian world. Because what happened there was that the Savior, in chapter 47, verse 14, took their purses, he took their possessions, he took their properties, he took their persons, and he took their places. Do you remember that? As long as they had money, they could buy the grain. But when the money runs out, what are we going to do now? And they went from servants who began to share crop, and you can follow those steps down the line. The end result was he bought their properties, and the last result was he bought them as slaves. That's what happened. For God's people who were there, he gave and he gave and he gave. And for those who were not, he took, 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 and took some more. We're not all going to be treated the same. Those who belong to him, he gives. Those who don't, he doesn't. He simply doesn't. Jesus has simply said, I will come again. It's going to happen. Let me conclude what I'm saying to you here this evening by going back to the book of Revelation, chapter 11 and verse 15. And let me just read for you what it says back there. It says that one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's what's going to happen.